So we are in the midst of a teaching series here at Ethos Hillsborough Village called Come and Stay, where as a church family here in like the urban core of Nashville in 2023, in such a culture that is so fast-paced and come and go, we are trying to take Jesus up on his invitation to come and stay to slow down and just to linger in his presence a little bit. This is, we kind of have pulled this out of John 15 where Jesus has this invitation to abide or remain in him. And this all just comes out of this desire for our church to be a people who uh, live life first and foremost with God and from God and also live life for God. And that order is important, like with and uh, from and for. Um, So in Galatians 5, we get this list of nine attributes. That's kind of our second key text for this teaching series. You've got John 15, you've got Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, there's this list that Paul gives of these nine attributes that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. These are character traits that the Spirit begins to grow in our lives as we mature in Christ-likeness. It's fruit that grows in our lives simply as we spend time with Jesus. And so last week, we started off this journey of actually moving through this list by focusing on the love of Christ that we see in the cross of Christ. And this week, we move on to the second word in that list, which is joy. As I've been preparing for the teachings in this series over the last few weeks, I feel like God has just been revealing to me something that he wants to do in our hearts and in our church family, that he wants to correct some wrong perceptions that we might have of his heart through this, of who he really is, like at the core. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dana Ortland says that we tend to project our natural expectations about who God is onto him instead of fighting to let the Bible surprise us into what God himself says. I think God wants to do some of the same for all of us here as a church as we let the Bible, God's self-disclosure statement, surprise us into what he has to say about himself. And so this morning, as we explore joy, I'm not going to try to define joy. I'll put that out there. I'm not trying to explain joy. I'm not even trying to talk about our experience of joy. But my hope this morning is that as we kind of just sit and linger in three different but connected stories from Scripture, that we let the Bible surprise us into the joyful heart of God. I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I'm not sure that joy or joyful would have been one of the first words that I would use to describe God. But that's Paul's second word that he uses to describe the Spirit of God in Galatians 5. If I'm being honest, like if I'm really being honest with y'all, growing up, 
and maybe even still sometimes, like I thought of God as a bit of a curmudgeon, like this crusty miser in the sky who's kind of just like always cold and disappointed. And Jesus was probably, I pictured him as a bit of a buzzkill, like the guy that when he shows up to the party, everyone's like, great, all right, this guy, party's over, guys. Like, go ahead, sit down. It's time for us to all hear, like, what we've been doing wrong, I guess. Like, does anyone else, have you ever felt that way about God? Thanks, Clay. There you go. Maybe it's just me. But when I was in high school, my friends and I, we found this video um, on YouTube. It was this, like, old Jesus movie from the 1960s that someone had come in and like dubbed over this hilarious stuff. But there's literally this scene of Jesus and his disciples together and Jesus comes around and they've dubbed over Jesus and he goes to each of the disciples and tells them what they have done wrong recently. And that's how we kind of tend to view Jesus sometimes, isn't it? not exactly a picture of a joy-filled person. But that's not how the New Testament portrays Jesus at all. Joy, like I mentioned earlier, is the second word that Paul uses to describe the character of God being formed in us by the Spirit of Jesus himself. And order matters here. Like in biblical lists, orders matter. The most like, important or the most weighty things are typically listed first. So rightly, like love starts off this list, but it's followed right on the heels of love is joy. Joy is one of the most prevalent character traits of the heart of God. In John chapter two, we get this story of uh, Jesus' first miracle. And John, he sets the scene for us of Jesus and his disciples at a wedding. And Jesus, he's received this invitation to join in this wedding alongside with his disciples. And Jesus was no recluse of a person. Like, he participated in everyday events of life. He participated in moments of celebration and rejoicing, such as weddings. Not to mention all of the feasts and celebrations that Israel observed by God's instruction. In fact, at one point in the Gospels, Jesus is actually accused of being a glutton and a drunk. That, of course, was not true. Like, Jesus knew no sin. But apparently, Jesus knew how to have a really good time. And his, the, his critics used that as ammunition against him and his credibility. Now, a wedding in Jesus' context was pretty different from our own. It wasn't a one-night event where you just show up, you dress up, and then go home. But it was a celebration that typically lasted several consecutive days, sometimes even up to a week long. And I bring that up only to say that Jesus, showing up to this wedding, 
wasn't prepared just to celebrate with this family and with this bride and groom for one night, but he was prepared to actively celebrate with them for days on end. So for days, Jesus and his disciples, they partook in wedding festivities. There would have been plenty to eat, plenty to drink. There would have been music and dancing. Some things don't change. Like some things are just universal across the human race and how we tend to celebrate is one of those things, right? And at some point during all of these festivities, we don't know if it was on the first night or second night or at what point, but at some point, something terrible happens. They run out of wine. And this isn't a problem because people are going to begin sobering up. It's a problem because such a thing would have been socially embarrassing for the groom's family, especially in an honor-shame culture like theirs. But also because wine in the biblical story was, and often still is in our context, a symbol of joy and celebration. Wine in scripture is often a gift from God that symbolizes joy all through the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. And it's used to celebrate and remember moments of joyous occasion. In the, in the biblical world, celebration, rejoicing, and wine, they go hand in hand. And Mary, Jesus' mother, who's helping host this wedding, she comes to Jesus, she like finds him in the crowd and she comes up and she's like, hey, bad news, they ran out of wine. And Jesus gives what at first seems like a really odd response. He's like, dear woman, like what does this, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. But then Mary turns to the servants nearby and is like, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And so I imagine Jesus and these servants, they step out of whatever area that the celebration is going on, maybe into a back alleyway or into a staging area for the caterer of the wedding And the disciples are kind of tagging along behind, like peeking around the corner, watching to see what's going to happen. And wherever they end up, outside, there are these six large stone jars that were made for holding water for ceremonial washing. And these would have been huge jars. Like, we're not talking like ball mason jars. We're talking huge jars carved out of one giant piece of stone that would have held 20 to 30 gallons a piece. And there's six of them. And seeing these jars, Jesus instructs the servants to fill them up all the way to the brim with water. And so these servants, they, they do as he says. They go, they start drawing water from some nearby source, probably carrying buckets of water through the streets of the town back to these jars and filling them up. And once they're filled all the way up, like almost overflowing, Jesus instructs them, okay, now draw some of that out and take it to the master of the banquet. And as they, they're probably like confused of like, we ran out of wine, like why are you wanting us to take water? But 
They listen, and as they draw this water out, they see that the water that they put into these jars has been turned to wine. So the servants, they take this water turned into wine to the master of the banquet, and they present it to him, and I just imagine him like with it. He like probably gives it a little sommelier swirl and a sniff, <laughs> a little tilt back and taste. And I just imagine his eyes like open up with surprise and delight, and you probably just see just, just pure enjoyment like wash over his body as he maybe gives like a mmm. <laughs> he sets the glass down and he goes off to find the family, the groom's family who last they heard, they were running out of wine. And so they probably saw him approaching them thinking, great, it's party's over, we finally run out, he's gonna let us know, it's time to kinda end things, cut it off. But he comes over and he compliments them on this new vintage of wine that they've brought out. That typically at the wedding, people will save, like serve the good wine first, but these guys, they've saved the best for last. Jesus has just turned 150 gallons of water into the best wine that you could imagine. The party will not need to end anytime soon. And you can imagine in that moment the surprise and relief on this family's face as they have this interaction with the MC and the joyful like knowing smirk of Jesus across the room watching this interaction happen not wanting for anyone to find out who it was he's not wanting anything but just simply smiling in joy at watching them realize everything is going to be okay we can continue to celebrate this marriage. And then John, the author of the story, he cuts in and adds this to the end of the story. This is how he ends it. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in, at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The first of his signs that manifested his glory a sign is something that points forward to a coming reality. And surely Jesus had this coming reality that this sign pointed forward to in mind on that night. Surely the symbolism of this first sign was not lost at, on him that night in Cana, pointing forward to another wedding banquet where Jesus himself would be the groom who provides wine that flows freely. A wedding feast, if, you, if you're unfamiliar, is one of the primary ways that the Bible describes the celebration that will be at the end of the age when Jesus returns, when heaven and earth are made anew and creation is fully restored. Jesus and many of the Old Testament prophets, they use imagery of a wedding feast to portray the celebration and the joy that is to come at the return of Jesus. As Christ and his bride, the church, are joined in holy union together. 
The prophet Isaiah, he speaks about the Lord preparing a feast on the mountaintops, a feast of rich food and well-aged wine as he swallows up death forever and wipes away the tears from people's faces. Joel and Amos, they speak about the mountains dripping with sweet wine on the day of Jesus' return. And Jesus himself, on multiple occasions and through multiple parables, likens the day of his return to that of a wedding feast and a celebration. When Christ returns, this kind of joy and celebration is going to be there. It's going to be there in ways that we probably have only caught glimpses of in our moments of most joyous occasion and celebration. That's the heart of God, guys. That eternity is going to be marked by joy-filled celebration. It's going to kick off with an amazing party, and it's going to be a really, really great time. And surely none of this was lost on Jesus that night. As he performed his first miracle, providing an abundance of sweet wine at this very real wedding in Cana. Surely as he went back into the party to celebrate this bride and groom with his disciples, he probably caught glimpses of the coming day when he would celebrate again with the people in that circle in the fullness of his kingdom. Surely as he went back in and Peter and Philip like complimented him on the wine and as they celebrated together, dancing and feasting, laughing, surely they all could taste in that moment an appetizer of the celebration to come. Surely even then, Jesus' heart was yearning for his bride looking forward in joyful anticipation and longing for the day of celebration with you, his bride, the church. And I want to remind you guys that whatever is true of the heart and character of Jesus is also true of the Father. Jesus, the heart... The heart of Jesus is the heart of the Father wrapped in flesh. I want to remind you that Jesus and the Father look at you with holy longing and joy in their heart. This past week, in your little reading guide card, if you took that with you, there was a story in that reading guide from Luke 15. It's this parable that Jesus tells that we often refer to as the prodigal son. And in that story, there's a son who asks his father for his inheritance early, and his dad gives it to him, and he leaves. He moves towns, he moves countries, like goes to a far-off land, and he squanders all of it. And... It's in that place when he finally hits rock bottom, eating and sleeping with pigs, animals that were unclean to the Jews, that he decides, like, all right, I'm going to go back to dad, 
I'm gonna ask him for a job because at least his servants have plenty of bread to eat. Like, this is worse than that. And so he picks himself up and he makes the journey back home. And the text says that while he was still a long way off, his father ran to him and he hugged him and he kissed him. And in that moment, as the father embraces him, the son is trying to like pull away and get in his apology and ask for a job, but the father isn't even listening to anything that the son is saying. He's already asking for the servants, kill the fattened calf, pour some wine, we're gonna celebrate, my son is back. They're gonna throw a party to rejoice over his return. Often, when we think of this story, we tend to focus on the love and the acceptance of the father towards his son, which is true and beautiful. But what I want you to see this morning is the joy that the father has over his son's return. I want you to see that the son is not met with cold acceptance from the father who waited for him on the porch with his arms folded and kind of a scowl on his face. He was just ready like, come on, yeah, let's hear it. I told you. But he's scooped up and embraced and lavished with kisses that he's not just allowed in for a simple dinner, but he is thrown a massive party that can be heard from a long way off. This is the heart of the Father towards you. When you come to him, he does not coldly sit on his throne just staring at you, waiting for you to give all of the necessary apologies to him but he scoops you up, he embraces you, he sets you in his lap, he lets you lean your head against his chest. Because child of God, he takes joy in you. Let me say that again, he takes joy in you, child of God. God gave us a lot of things to find joy in in this world. Great food, great drink, the beauty of nature, the beauty of marriage, all these things that are supposed to help us point our joy at him. It turns out God invented the party and we're typically the ones that ruin it. That was, that was Josh, yeah. <laughs> But for all the delightful things that God created, like that he like, created for our enjoyment, for our joy, that he surely delights in himself, what brings the Father the most joy is you, child of God. That's one of the most prominent aspects of his character. It's not the last thing on the list, but the second only after love. A big part of this series that we're doing is to simply, is not just to simply have myself or Joshua teach about the character of God, but to meditate on it and receive it. It can be really easy for us to know things like what I just talked to you guys about up here in our head and never let it percolate down and sink into our hearts and our souls. 
And that's part of what, that's what we want to do with this teaching series. That's why we've been talking about meditation and contemplative prayer, because it's in meditation and contemplative prayer that the ideas in our minds can begin to trickle down into our hearts and souls, because that's where the seeds of the fruit of the Spirit are sown, is in the soul, not in our mind. That's why this series is titled, Come and Stay. Sit and receive. Because its main thrust is actually to simply sit in the presence of God and the reality of his heart. So for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to invite you guys to meditate on God's heart of joy. I know we're pretty packed in here shoulder to shoulder, which can make a practice like this kind of difficult. It's a lot easier when we're on our own in a room with the door closed, but this is what we've got. You might hear traffic outside, you might hear a kid in the back, but I would just invite you as distractions come, just to focus on meditating as best you can on God's heart of joy. And as distractions come, let them drift away. As your thoughts inevitably drift away to other thoughts, to other worries, to other to-dos, that you simply come back and sit in the presence of God's joyful embrace. So here's the exercise. Here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to put yourself in the moment of one of these stories that we looked at today. Maybe you're with Jesus at the wedding at Cana after he's provided an abundance of sweet wine and you just see the joy in his face as he comes back into this party. Maybe you're with Christ at the wedding supper of the Lamb, along with all the saints of history, sitting at a banquet table that runs for miles and miles and miles. Maybe you are just enveloped in the embrace of the Father who pulls you in close, like a little child who picks you up and takes joy in you and rejoices over you but I want you to meditate on one of these three stories and on the joy of God present in them all. And like the prodigal son, you might feel this natural instinct to stiff arm that embrace and to keep it at bay because it feels a little uncomfortable. But I'd invite you just to relax that instinct and to let this joy just wash over you I encourage you to just allow yourself to receive it and to let the Spirit speak what he wants to speak. If you need to look over one of these verses or stories in your Bible to meditate, you can find the wedding at Cana in John 2, starting in verse 1, and you can find the prodigal son in Luke 15, starting in verse 20 is where I'd recommend starting. But I would encourage you, even if you do use a Bible, we've got some physical Bibles in the back if you want one of those, but even if you do, tonight, use this time to study and keep this all up here in your brain. But as something begins to grip your heart if you're using the scriptures, to put it away and to let it continue to grip your heart, let the Spirit lead you, close the Bible and meditate on it. I truly believe that God wants to speak to you this morning. 
And I would invite you to just enter into this time without any expectations of how it should go or how it's supposed to go. I was listening to a a recent podcast and they were talking about the practice of solitude, but I think what they said applies to this practice of meditation. They said, it's a lot like falling asleep. If you're trying really hard to fall asleep, it's a lot harder to fall asleep. So just with that posture, for the next 10 minutes, we've got soft music playing. I want you to meditate on God's heart of joy. And I'll come back up after 10 minutes. So.